Welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, your host and director of practice development at Real Self. Today's episode features Real Self CEO Tom Seary standing in for me as host as he sits down with Real Self in house counsel Josh King. Josh is a nationally known attorney and expert in legal issues surrounding online reviews, free speech, the First Amendment, and media law issues. I'm excited to have the general counsel for Real Self, Josh King. Hey, Tom. Happy to be here. Josh, you're a lawyer. Indeed. Tell me about your training, your background, because you know there's not too many lawyers that work inside of medical practices. So having a lawyer who works full-time for Real Self is sort of a, a novel thing. Is it because we have so many legal issues? or? But I want to know, you know, what is it about you that makes you tick, where you're, your background and training before we get into why you're a general counsel and what does that mean? Sure. So Real Self, it's more than a medical practice, obviously. It's a technology company, really. And like any mid-sized technology company with hundreds of employees, it has all of the sort of routine issues that face technology companies. And I've been working in-house in technology companies for almost 25 years, starting in the Bay Area and then coming up here to Seattle about 20 years ago, and working even more closely with internet companies over about the last 15 years and now with Real Self. And companies like Real Self that are trying to provide online services for consumers and have a marketplace of professionals on the other side, not only have those technology-based legal issues that I identified, but also some fairly unique, what I'll call free speech, First Amendment, and media law issues that come up when we are posting information and particularly user information on our site. Is it because the internet was not envisioned by our framers? So is that why there's so much legal nature to internet companies in particular? I mean, what's the source of that? Or is it just typical for every company needs sort of legal, internal legal drive? I think any company that gets to be a certain size that's publishing information online is really doing itself a disservice if it's not getting enough legal advice. And you see that all the time with companies making mistakes in how they publish information, how they practice good hygiene with their websites. Because yeah, this stuff has really developed. I mean, when I came out of law school, there wasn't an internet and it started to develop very quickly and a lot of the norms developed. And importantly, one of the things that even a lot of lawyers aren't necessarily aware of is that there was a law very early in the internet that passed known as the Communications Decency Act, which is an unfortunate name because almost the entire law was declared unconstitutional very quickly, but one part of it survived and it's easily the most important law for the development of the internet. It's what I call the law that makes the internet go. And it's only about 26 words long. Hmm. It's often referred to as CDA 230, but what it essentially boils down to is that internet providers like RealSelf aren't liable for information that's posted on the sites by third parties. And what that means in shorthand is that doctors who are upset about reviews and think they may need to pursue a defamation case against someone have to do so against the person who actually wrote that review and not the forum site. It's how Facebook can exist, Twitter, YouTube, etc. It's really provided for the rapid proliferation and growth of the internet. And so this is it a law? Is that what you're saying? It's it a is. Law? It's a federal law. It's okay. 47 USC section 230C1, if anyone wants to go look it up. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to go look that up, but... Google. I'm sure it's been challenged multiple ways. Oh, it has. And it continues to be all the time. It's mm -hmm. been heavily, heavily litigated from all sorts of angles. But it's very consistently come back to the idea that the purpose of this law is to allow internet forums to flourish and to provide places where there's a lot of freedom for providers, not only to allow their users to publish information, but probably equally important for providers to create rules for their own forums that are mm -hmm. appropriate for their forums, and then police and enforce those rules in ways that are useful for their users as determined by the site without fear of litigation. The example there being that we've got community guidelines and they're really guidelines, they're not hard and fast rules, but we can go out and look at all the content on our site, reviews that are posted, and make sure that those reviews actually meet our community guidelines. Mm -hmm. If a review is challenged by a doctor and the doctor says, hey, I don't think this meets your community guidelines, 
we can go and take another look at it and make mm-hmm. a decision one way or the other without really being worried that we're complying with our guidelines in a really legalistic fashion mm-hmm. where we might get sued if we do it in the wrong way. And this is a really underappreciated aspect of CDA 230, the law that makes the internet go, is that it not only provides this robust protection for sites that are creating forums, but it also creates this breathing area for sites to be able to actually work and proactively try to make the content that's on their sites as useful for their audiences as possible. Because otherwise, and unfortunately, we're starting to see a lot of calls from various quarters to restrict CDA 230 and carve it back in all sorts of, frankly, lunatic ways. And some of those calls are basically saying, well, sites should not be able to moderate or they should have to moderate in accordance with the First Amendment, which doesn't apply to private companies. And the outcome of that, of course, would be that sites could no longer moderate, which would mean that in the case of Real Self, for example, to take that to its extreme, we'd either have to not allow any user reviews at all, or we'd have to allow people to post whatever the hell they wanted which would obviously turn our reviews into a complete wasteland or a cesspool might be better. Mm -hmm. uh, That would be useless for both doctors and for prospective patients. Hmm. So every law has moments where it's taken to a place where somebody sort of stretches it to serve their agenda. And so if I wanted to create a website, which by the way, these do exist, where only negatives are posted, I could do that. You're saying I, under this law, and protected to focus on only negative things people want to say about a business, a medical practice, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, notable examples of that would include Ripoff Report mm-hmm. and PissedConsumer.com. Can they charge? Can they say, if you want negatives to come down, you're going to have to pay me? That's where you start getting into a little bit of a gray area. There was a run on sites that published mugshots that provided ways to pay to have that content taken down. There are other programs that I know have been used by some of these sites in various times where they have escalation processes. You certainly could have an escalation process that a business would have to pay to take part in because there's a cost associated with it for the business, mm-hmm. for the form site and actually going out and like, let's say holding a little mini factual hearing or whatever the process might be on that review that's probably okay. It's not something that most sites are going to do because it just doesn't scale very well. But certainly if you got to the point where you were really turning it into a pay-to-play model, that's where you'd run into a lot of gray area. And that would be not only you know a problem from a legal perspective, it would very quickly just sabotage any credibility that that site might have. And that's, that's one of the reasons why you don't see much of that. Yeah. I have seen these sites that do seem to focus on negatives and they something about if you do want to address it, it did seem like there was a fee associated with it. But I don't want to go too much into that because I think those are more fringe. Yeah. For every, you know, consumer focused sites for companies like Real Self and Yelps and all those that allow people to share opinions. I hear from doctors frequently and often, and I don't mean like emails and texts and all that, but conferences and so forth. When we talk about online reviews, they point out the injustices associated with them. And I use that word injustice because it feels unfair. Mm-hmm. And let me just go through a few of those since I, I think my audience is made up of doctors and, and practice owners and managers would love me to sort of represent them in this discussion because they have some, some challenges to their practice. One, a person can post an online review and cite a bunch of false information patently false details about the procedure they got, the recovery process, how things actually played out. And yet they can stay up on sites due to what you described as law protecting the provider of these web services. Why is that fair? Why is that allowed? Doesn't truth matter in our world? Well, there's a lot in that, Tom, but I'd start with the idea that most sites are not in a position to police factual claims and information that's posted on the site. I don't think any online review forum is going to host a trial or an evidentiary hearing on the facts that may be contained within a review. They may go so far, and and we do this to a certain extent at Real Self. We did it at my former company, Avo, which is very similar to Real Self, but just think instead of doctors, it was for lawyers, Mm -hmm. where if the facts looked, when we'd review for community guidelines compliance, 
if the facts looked outlandish or super strange or there's something sort of smelled wrong about them, we would often remove that review in a case like that. And again, the, the fact that we have the freedom to sort of interpret our community guidelines the way we want to would help in that way. But I mean, ultimately, yes, of course, truth is important, but it's not the only value that we have. Openness and a robust marketplace of ideas is also super important. And if you really want to press on that issue, I would say the Supreme Court has, has very consistently held, and there have been a number of notable cases in the last few years, that even out and out lying is protected First Amendment activity. Um, so and fabrication is protected by the First Amendment. Absolutely, yes. Within reason, right? So hmm. I want to draw a distinction here in that it's not protected to the extent it crosses over into defamation. And so like the notable case that uh, the Supreme Court decided a few years back, the Alvarez case involved what's known as stolen valor. It was a guy who was making up all sorts of stuff about himself. Like he played in the NHL and he was married to a Mexican soap opera star and that he'd won the Medal of Honor and he'd go out and wear a military uniform. And it was all completely false. Hmm. And that went to the Supreme Court under the Stolen Valor Act which the Supreme Court declared was unconstitutional because that kind of lying, which doesn't really harm anybody, is protected by the First Amendment. If you lie in a way that harms someone's reputation, that's completely different. That's an, one of the few exceptions to the broad First Amendment doctrine for defamation. So in the case of a doctor, if someone is posting facts that are completely false, including, and this is a concern that comes up, that maybe they never had a procedure from you. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're your competitor and they're trying to harm you. Mm -hmm. That is not protected by the First Amendment. That's defamatory. And so in a case like that, the doctor could sue and successfully sue the person who wrote that review for defamation. Defamation, you've explained this to me before, but I think my listeners would, would love to hear a bit more of like, okay, I believe this is defamation, but the path to proving that out in a court system, the costs associated with it, the time period, can you help frame that? Because I think it's much more than just simply making the case as defamatory and seeing justice prevail. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. And first of all, defamation has to be a false statement of material fact that harms your reputation. So it can't be something minor, like, you know, the doctor rushed me out of the procedure. I was only in there for 20 minutes. And you say, no, 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 she was in there for 25, something like that. That's too minor. It's got to be material. It's got to be major. But then even if you're thinking about suing for defamation, I often say that this is absolutely the last thing you want to do because it's so costly, because it's so uncertain, because you may not be the most objective person who's viewing whether you actually have a case. Because even if you identify who wrote that review, they may be judgment-proof and you can't get any money out of them. Mm. And then probably the most important reason of all which is what's known as the Streisand effect, which is that if you make a big deal out of something that's published online, which really nobody may be paying attention to other than you, you may amplify the attention You're that's You're flipping on it. the lights and shining a, a bright light on something that you consider is damaging, and now you're telling the world, look at this, look how damaging this is. <laughs> Precisely, look at this damaging thing, look at this thing I hate. And all of a sudden you bring exponentially more attention to it, when in fact it may be far more effective to simply go out and bury it by doing what we often recommend, which is making it a practice to ask your happy patients to regularly leave you reviews. Okay, but in the case of defamation, I don't need to go to trial if I'm a doctor who's upset about something where somebody is making some completely outlandish assertions on an online review, couldn't I just simply have my lawyer threaten the lawsuit and that's all it takes to stop individuals from this behavior? Potentially. The problem with taking that approach is twofold. One is that that's not going to work if you have your lawyer send that threatening letter to the review site. It's not going to work at Real Self. It's not going to work at Yelp. It's not going to work wherever. Because again, we all know that we're protected by the law that makes the internet go. We are not liable for that information that's published on our site any more so than if someone sent you a defamatory email, your email service provider wouldn't be liable for that. So that's not an effective path. I will come back to it another way you can communicate with the forum provider that may be effective in a mm -hmm. second though. 
you can, if you know who left the review, and this may happen sometimes where you know who the patient is, you can identify them from the content in the review and you think it's just completely wrong, you can send that person a cease and desist letter. And that person may take that seriously and then may contact the review site and ask that the review be taken down. And at least in the case of Real Self, if someone did that and wrote a note back saying, you know what, I've thought twice about the, the review. The, the reviewer saying, hey, yeah. I heard from the, the practice, they are threatening me and I just don't want to keep this up any longer. Right. So that may be one path you could take. I think you have to be both fair about that and cautious too, because those things can also end up invoking, even a cease and desist letter can end up invoking the Streisand effect, mm -hmm. where if that person reacts instead of meekly by going and retracting their review, maybe they'll go out and publicize your cease and desist letter. There's all sorts of places online that love to publicize overreaching and abusive cease and desist letters. There's a whole community for it online. And so you wanna be careful that that may end up backfiring that way as well. One of the things that can be effective if you can stay objective enough about that negative review is to write to the forum site and just politely don't, don't make demands because again, we don't have any legal obligation to do anything. Mm -hmm. But if you ask us to take a second look at the review, if you say, Hey, I don't think this review is fair. I don't think it meets your community guidelines for X, Y, and Z reasons. We are happy to do that. We do that all the time. That doesn't mean we're necessarily going to take that review down, but we're absolutely going to look at it again. It's going to get a much deeper pass than it got on the first go round. And there's a chance that we'll decide, you know what, this probably shouldn't have been published in the first place. So we're going to make the decision now to take it down. That's a very easy and low cost initial step you can take anytime you get a negative review. I see. Okay. So proving defamation also, you said, had material impact. What, is, what do you mean by that? Do you mean you have to prove to a court you've had financial damages due to this posting? Well, it doesn't usually go that far. Mm -hmm. Most states, and it differs slightly from state to state, but most states sort of have a default for if it's a damage to your reputation, it is by default considered to have caused you actual damages. You don't have to end up having to prove the damages. Again, that may differ a little bit from state to state, but that's usually the case. It's usually enough to be able to prove that someone made false claims about your professional reputation. Right. And California recently passed some new laws. I've been told it's similar to the right to be forgotten laws in the EU, where you know, you can ask a platform to remove your content from, say, from Facebook. Okay, you're look, you just looked at me across the mic here saying, what are you talking about? But California has put in new laws, I've understood, that are associated to the right to be forgotten. Is that correct? No, not exactly. I mean, okay. I, California has put in place a new privacy law, the, uh -huh. the California Consumer Privacy Act. But I wouldn't think of it as, as incorporating the right to be forgotten, which is something that applies to European privacy law, mm -hmm. which can, in some cases, allow you to have even truthful information about you removed online. Got it. That is not a concept that exists in the United States now and likely won't. So if I'm a European doctor who has a bad review on a platform, you're saying there's laws there that could potentially be triggered to support the removal of that content from the internet. Potentially, but likely only in Europe, because we have different laws in the United States. And even then, probably not, because the bar for invoking the right to be forgotten is fairly high. And there's a whole category, I don't wanna to get too far into European privacy law sure. here, but there is, there's a whole category where there's an exception to the right to be forgotten when it comes to health information. Hmm. And so it's pretty unlikely that you'd be able to have a truthful review removed under the right to be forgotten, even in Europe, even if it was really old. Mm. I will say there's two important laws that California does have that doctors need to keep in mind because doctors get burned by these from time to time, and they're both consumer friendly. One is the fact that California led the way in imposing a law that prevents businesses from having terms of use that essentially prevent their users from writing negative reviews online. This was something that particularly plastic surgeons were big fans of about 10 or 15 years ago. There was an outfit called Medical Justice, and 
they sold a package of mm-hmm. um, yeah, familiar, yeah, sort of reputation management products. One of which was a prophylactic agreement that doctors would have their patients sign, preventing them from posting negative online reviews. Is this only a state level law, California, or a national, U.S. wide? You cannot have patients sign away their rights. Yeah, so California led the way with it. I think it mm-hmm. went into effect in 2015. And then a national law followed that went into effect a couple of years ago. And so that's it's now true nationwide that you cannot use these consumer gag orders across any business, really, when it comes to trying to wave away your users' rights to comment online. If I'm a practice, a doctor, can I compel a patient to seek arbitration as opposed to like, there's an intermediary step before they post an negative review. Can I request that in the relationship between us? Like before you post an negative review, you will come to me to try to find resolution. No. So there's no simple solution to preventing the posting. Nope. You can certainly try to drive that behavior. And if you start looking for this stuff in the wild, you'll start seeing it everywhere. Like it, hotels do are really good at this where they'll have signs and stuff saying, you know, we really want to give you a great experience. If you had a five-star experience, go post it on these sites. Yeah, yeah. If anything was wrong, please contact us at this email address. So they're essentially trying to funnel the good stuff publicly and the bad stuff. Yeah, they're very, they're very, I noticed this, I just recently stayed at a hotel, a big chain, and they were really clever in the checkout. How was your stay, sir? And I made a little bit of a complaint. I said, well, overall, you know, this worked really nicely, but just had challenges with this one thing. And boy, they were on top of that. And I think it has to do with their sensitivity to how that then ends up manifesting itself online. But if they could address it there, it will never show up. Absolutely. And there's a lesson there for any business owner and particularly for people who are selling high value services like plastic surgeons, right? You don't have a huge volume of people. You're not putting a thousand guests through your hotel every day where the sheer volume of reviews may swamp out the handful of negatives when you're doing a good job. You need to make sure that the small number of patients you have are by and large all leaving positive reviews. And so one thing you can do that I've seen professionals, I've seen both lawyers and doctors who are on top of their game with this do effectively, is they'll do something similar to what these hotels are doing, where they create a mechanism for people to submit complaints to them early, which is not only great at preventing that from you know metastasizing into a horrible negative review down the road, it also provides a channel for you to find out about stuff early in the process when you can still fix it. Where service problems occurred that you might not even notice. It could have been as frustrating as the parking garage didn't take the validated stamp from your, your parking ticket. Yeah, it can be stuff that's completely outside of your control. Mm-hmm. And that feels a little bit unfair sometimes, back mm-hmm. to your question about fairness of these reviews. But ultimately, we're in a service business And you've got to make sure that the experience, to the extent you can, is as good as it can be. And you may say, well, you know, really the only thing that's important is that this person got a great nose job. Well, you know, yes, that's the most important thing, but it's also important that they were treated respectfully by the people at your front desk, that they didn't have to wait in your waiting room for 45 minutes before every single appointment, you know, that the temperature was appropriate. Um, Yeah, that the elevator wasn't broken down. They didn't have to climb three flights of stairs. And there's a lot of these things that particularly if you've got a busy practice and you're practicing medicine, they may be complete blind spots for you unless you have created a mechanism where you can find out about these things early. Yeah, if you think about the restaurant context, how often does the waiter, the maitre d', whoever it may be, come by and say, how is everything? And you, you know, you might be in the middle of a conversation, you're like, right. excuse me, what? Oh. And, and you find it kind of sometimes maybe a little bit jarring or irritating, but it's something they have learned is a process to open the door for, oh, you know, the calamari is a little overcooked or whatever may be that could then manifest later. And you said metastasize, which is a uh, is an interesting term, but it could become something that is the next terrible review on Yelp, but instead it's caught early on. Yeah, and I mean, it's I've had to train myself this way because having worked in businesses like this for as long as I have, I know how critical user feedback is, mm-hmm. how important it is, and like how much businesses invest in it, right? We're actually, we're actively going out and trying to get people to tell us what's wrong with our site, for example. We're doing user testing. We're having them bang away on the new features and find problems. We're paying for this stuff. 
And so I've had to train myself when people ask me that question, because a lot of times the tendency, even if something wasn't quite right, it's like, oh no, everything was fine. Yep. They want that feedback. They want to know that that calamari was was a little bit cold yeah. so they can fix it next time. So they don't have someone who's perhaps a little more upset about that goes and writes a really negative review on Yelp. Yeah, it's something interesting in our culture at Real Self where I've made this an important point, which is we should see feedback as a gift. And it's something I believe that Amazon has done an incredible job of like, what is the secret behind Amazon? You could say, oh, it's because they organize all their information on a website. No. It's our customer-centered nature and their willingness to basically recognize, as Bezos talks about, consumers are delightfully unsatisfied all the time. And what can we do to continuously improve? So let's go into the scenario that I've heard that I think truly is a challenge for practices. I, as a patient, can come in, have a experience, go post on a site, say it was terrible. The practice can come back to me and say, well, hey, Tom, you know, we thought you were really happy and we even checked in with you and you left here delayed. And I say to them, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to take down this negative review unless you give me my money back. And so what I hear from doctors and I'm you as well have heard them through the dispute channels that we offer is that I'm being extorted. The term extortion is used. And I'm sure there's some legal definitions around what is it true meaning of this. So I'd love you to help explain that, but also is there something there to stop a person from weaponizing a review to harm a business, whether a medical practice, a restaurant or a hotel? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a tricky area and every site approaches it a little bit differently. Um, technically, legally, extortion is a narrower concept than I think most people would think about. So in, in the example of a, a, a patient who's weaponizing a review, as you put it, who wants money to take down a review, that could be extortion. Um, let's say it's a patient who everything was fine. Everything seemed fine. They got the outcome they wanted. There's really nothing to complain about. Uh, they write a super harsh review and they're like, you know what? This is just how I roll. Um, yeah, it was fine, but I, I need a 30% discount, so give me the money back and I take the review down. Uh, that's, that's pretty comfortably within the definition of extortion. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, and this is probably what happens more commonly, is that someone has a bad experience and they write a negative review about it. Um, oftentimes they want to publicize it as broadly as they can online. And, and then the doctor's trying to resolve it with them. They know who the patient is and they, um, they may offer a discount, a revision, whatever the case may be. And the patient says, no, I want more, um, give me X, Y, and Z. And as part of that, I'll take the review down if we're able to resolve this. That is not extortion. That is simply mm-hmm. hard bargaining. And that's a patient using a bargaining chip that they have. Um, you may not like it, but ultimately it's, it's not extortive. And, and again, it, it can get to be a little bit of a fuzzy line and, and it, it kind of depends on the facts of, of any given case. Um, so you, you wanna be fairly clear though that you are, if, if you wanna have success in getting a site to take down a review in the case of something that you think is extortive, um, you really want to try to have some sort of evidence of that. Because again, we're not going to get in the middle of factual disputes, but we will sometimes look at some clear-cut evidence. Evidence uh, being like a email from that patient, but isn't that revealing who the, pa- isn't it a HIPAA violation for the practice to then share that with a platform, whether it be Yelp, RealSelf, Google, et cetera? Yeah, and that depends because, um, I mean, a, HIPAA is not going to apply to every practice. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you're a practice that's not involved, if you're, if you're purely elective, you're not dealing with any health care, health insurance, uh, then HIPAA is not technically uh, going to apply to you. You may also, depending on where things are at, have um, exceptions at fault beca- because there's litigation or disciplinary uh, proceeding going. But it's, it's definitely something that a doctor would need to be mindful of. Um, that said, there's ways that you can communicate that information without... Um, without sharing um, the personal health information that's contained within it, within it you can re- redact some of the information. Um, but you, you definitely have to be careful about that if you are a practice that's dealing with health insurance. Um, even more so, you have to be careful if you're going to go one step further and like try to post a response that's arguing with a review like that. 
Mm -hmm. um, that's definitely not a good idea. Is there a moment where a, okay, this is, I'm taking this a little bit different direction, but you just should have triggered this thought. Can a patient give up their, their privacy? Meaning I'm okay as a patient coming in to that you share, if I post online, that you can respond and not be violating my privacy. Do you see what I'm saying? Like waving your HIPAA rights. And so if that's, I know legally, you're probably cringing inside that the way I described that. <laughs> but can an individual be um, requested to do so, so that a practice can have a proper response to a, which talks about the facts that they, as, as they see them? Yeah, generally speaking, there's not going to be a waiver unless it's explicit. So a patient could give an explicit waiver. They could like write out an explicit waiver where I'm waiving my HIPAA rights. They're uh -huh. probably not gonna do that in the context of a negative review. There could be an effective waiver in the case of, let's say litigation. Let's say the patient is suing the doctor for malpractice. That said, that waiver may not apply to information that's posted online. It, it probably is only going to apply within the context of the litigation. Mm. It is never a good idea to assume that there's been some sort of effective waiver that because the patient has written about the experience online and perhaps even identified themselves, that it's then free game for you as the doctor to set the record straight right. in responding to that review. And, and I'll go further than that. I'll say not only is that really dangerous from a privacy perspective, it's like about the most ineffective thing you can do as the doctor. Because, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of a potential patient who's reading that review, which is what you care about the reviews for anyway, right? That potential patient is gonna read you arguing with a former patient about what happened during a procedure. Hmm. That's gonna make you look like someone who's thin-skinned, defensive, doesn't take your patient's privacy interests seriously. There's far more effective ways to respond to negative reviews, which you can do without revealing any information at all. For example? You can simply post something that says, words along the lines of, we're sorry you had a bad experience, we strive to provide the best possible service and medical outcomes, but these things are inherently uncertain. If there's anything we can do to make this better, please contact me directly, mm -hmm. period. You may know who the person is, you may know that's not going to be effective. But the rest of the world reading that review exactly. sees that as well. That's well, the audience. Yeah, they really care. Yeah. Know, they're at least trying to help the person, or maybe even, wow, that patient's really not being fair. You know, they should contact the practice. Exactly. Yeah, it really puts it in context. We talked about extortion. Did you have any other comments about the construct of a patient trying to get something for free or in return for taking down a review? I think it's really just important to distinguish between the otherwise happy patient who's trying to get something for free versus the unhappy patient who is using a negative review as an additional point of leverage to try to get the outcome that they legitimately feel they're entitled to. You don't have to agree that they're legitimately entitled to it, but you, if you have to put yourself objectively in the position of saying, is this something that they could reasonably argue they're entitled to? You know, yeah, you know what? That rhinoplasty outcome wasn't the best it could have possibly been. Or yeah, you know, there was a lot of bruising involved with that procedure. It's really only when it crosses the line to it being something they're not entitled to ask for that it becomes extortion. So if a practice does agree, fine. I'm gonna have to just take it in the chin on this one, give 20% discount for that person who's not happy with their nose job. Do they need some sort of legal document to establish basically you agree to do the following based on this? Or is that not the path that typically you would recommend? Well, I'm not advising medical practices, but I would say in, in a case like that, you would normally, if it's a material amount of money at all, you'd want to have some form of agreement. I mean, typically that would be a settlement agreement of some form that would set out the terms of the deal so that it would be enforceable if the patient didn't go through with it. Yeah. The other thing you'd want to do is you'd want to try to have some clean procedure for them to go and take the review down before they got whatever else they were going to get. We do sometimes hear from doctors who will say, hey, I've reached an agreement with someone to take the review down. Sometimes they'll even send us the agreement and there's really not a whole lot we can do with that. Mm -hmm. We can't sit there and validate it, make sure it's real. We can't connect it necessarily to a review because the you know most of the reviews that are left on real self, we have a lot of metadata behind them in the form of IP addresses and email addresses, but it's not like we have someone's whole social profile and name address social security number. 
Here's what's confusing. I want to back up. It just dawned on me you had been talking about. I, I think your answers so far have been a little bit frustrating for our practice because th- there aren't a lot of options. The law seems to be very much in favor of free speech, which, yeah. but, you know, I think is, I'm not going to argue that, look, <laughs> I just say pointing it out. But in the news in this election cycle has been cases where, and also with the Me Too movement, where individuals are unable to speak because they've signed NDAs or non-disclosure agreements mm-hmm. of some sort. So how does that work and is acceptable in a world where you're saying basically doctors have no ability to stop patients from providing their feedback online? So let's start with NDAs. The Consumer Review Fairness Act, which is the federal law that prevents these gag orders with your patients, think of it as applying prospectively. So what you can't do is you can't just make it a condition of receiving service from you that all of your patients up front agree that they will never post anything negative about you online, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. You can't do that prospectively. What you can do is you can have people sign an NDA, a confidentiality agreement as a condition of settling something. Mm -hmm. So you have a dispute with a patient about the outcomes they got. You certainly could have as part of the agreement that you reached with them, which may be a a refund, a revision, whatever the case may be, that at that point they would not post negatively about you. So it's really the difference between whether you're trying to do something on a blanket basis up front or whether you're trying to do it after the fact. Understood. How about the anonymous poster and you pretty sure you know who that is who posted a negative review as a doctor. You're like, that individual must be Jane Doe or Joe mm-hmm. Smith or whatever. Can that doctor's lawyer help unmask that individual and demonstrate for a fact who that really is and, and the author behind it? Yeah, you can try. This is also one of those areas that's developing. It's, it is what's known as unmasking. And so you would, um, in a case like that, let's say you have a solid defamation case, you're willing to risk the Streisand effect, and so you you need to go and make sure you have the right defendant identified. And so you would send to the forum site, let's say it's real self, a subpoena seeking to unmask the identity of that reviewer. The issue is that courts have been developing over the last 15 years a a protocol for how to deal with these types of subpoenas because they're really not the same as a traditional third-party record subpoena, which a lot of medical practices are familiar with because you'll get them in the context of personal injury litigation or the like where people need to get medical records, where for the most part, you turn records over as a business in response to a third-party record subpoena. It's different when it comes to unmasking subpoenas. And states are still working this out and there's different standards in each state. At my last company, we actually established the standard in Washington Mm. state for how to deal with unmasking subpoenas because we had a situation where an attorney sued over a negative review and she subpoenaed my company to unmask that person. We fought that subpoena because quite frankly, the reviewer had provided me with evidence that she had in fact been a client of this attorney. And so it went up to the Court of Appeal here in Washington, and we established the rule in Washington state, which essentially, and there's variance on this from state to state, but the general rule that states have adopted is that plaintiffs in these cases have to do something more. They can't simply allege that this was a defamatory posting. They typically have to have some sort of evidence. They have to make some sort of prima facie case that there's a connection here to this particular person and there being defamation. You can't just baldly allege it in your complaint and expect that you're going to get compliance with a third-party record subpoena. And you've seen a number of big internet companies. Google fights back on unmasking subpoenas. Twitter does, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's not that we won't across the board comply with subpoenas. There's lots of cases where we will, but we want to make sure that users have an opportunity to push back on these things in those appropriate cases. And it's generally the principle that there is a First Amendment right to publish things anonymously. There are important free speech principles behind anonymous speech. And we don't want to make it so easy that you can simply file a pro forma subpoena and unmask that anonymous speech. Mm -hmm. I just want to go into a little bit different area of law and wrap with a few quick fire off questions to you. But when it comes to other areas of legal and, and practices, I think about patients' privacy in particular I see a lot of practices posting images of their patients on Instagram. 
before and after photo galleries, whether it be posted real self. I was wondering if you had some advice on what is the most assured way to stay in safe territory as it comes to getting rights to the content and making sure the patient isn't or putting you in a position where you're getting sued by that patient for privacy violations. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is all of this regulation of let's call the the interface between medical practices and patients and prospective patients, it's pretty complex. And there's a lot of law involved at both the state and federal level. But ultimately, if you apply a simple principle, you'll stay on the right side of it in 98% of the cases, which is think like your patients and prospective patients and do what they would objectively expect you to do. And you're most likely going to stay out of trouble. So for instance, before and after photos, I mean, before and after photos are super useful for prospective patients. That's right. They love them. They're great for practices to showcase the kind of work you can do, but they're equally important for the people who might want that work because they're like, whole, you know, that's exactly what I'm looking for. You know, that particular nose profile, et cetera. It's pretty simple. And frankly, a lot of the patients who've achieved those outcomes want to share their photos because they're really happy with the work that you've gotten. So as long as you're not being sloppy, as long as you make it a practice to get them to sign a document that gives you permission to share those photos, mm-hmm. and that doesn't have to be a complex or complicated document, it can be a one-page document that basically gives you the right to do that. And then, you know, you'll oftentimes, and, and again, it depends on the body parts involved, you know, where the sensitivities are going to lie, you know, maybe you do things to obfuscate the actual identity of that person. But simple things like that, that, you know, put yourself in the shoes of your patients and what they would expect, that's going to keep you on the right side of the line. Yeah, I was recently at a practice, I think it was a dental practice, and I was being asked, you know, all the forms you're filling out in the beginning, it's just like, oh my goodness, signing, signing away, you know, you don't even know what you're signing sometimes because it's it's HIPAA stuff and all that. But there was a little box that said, you know, we have rights to use your, but it was just sort of buried in there, this sort of like checkbox that was already like pre-selected, I think. Yeah, that's not a good practice. Okay, but your advice is make it explicit, make it clear, make it transparent to the patient. This is what we would like to have permission to do, which is utilize your images to help others understand what a rhinoplasty, for instance, results can look like, including your amazing results. I mean, you're right about that stack of papers and you get that everywhere. But I mean, if you are going to use those before and after photos in your marketing, and that's true whether it's on your website, the side of a bus, or social media on Instagram, you should make absolutely sure that those patients have given you explicit permission. And that could take the form of that you're highlighting that document at the time you're having them sign in in the first instance, or if you don't wanna do that, if you just wanna make sure that you know they've signed everything in that flurry of paper at the beginning, that for the ones that you select, you go back to them before you actually do that and get their explicit permission that they're going to do that. In some cases, that's an even better practice to use Mm -hmm. because it avoids surprise. Because even if you've highlighted that document when someone came in, if it's nine months later and you're going to make this the centerpiece of a social media advertising campaign, they may have completely forgotten about it and they may be surprised. They may be surprised in a good way or they may be surprised in a bad way. But it's best in a case like that to notify them again and seek to get permission again before you actually publish. Sticking with images for just a moment, I was just curious to dig into a practice that has shown up in Instagram in particular, but also in before and after galleries where a practice will you know, modify the image. They might just do it because the lighting wasn't quite right. You know, They'll change that. I mean, it's adding a filter, whatever it may be. But the idea of manipulating that image to make it look more favorable is also a potential outcome where it's modified to make the results look more dramatic. Is that illegal? It's not necessarily illegal. It really depends on the details, like how you're using that photo and how much you've manipulated it. Because there's probably a fine line where up to a certain point, it's really just aesthetics and maybe you're, you want to make sure that all the photos on the page have a sort of a similar background or something like that. It's when you're affirmatively making it look different than what the actual outcome was that you start to cross the line. Now, I, I don't like to use the word illegal because what you're really talking about in cases like this are deceptive advertising. And so if you've manipulated it enough and you're using it in advertising, 
mm-hmm. which could be just on your website, and you haven't disclosed the manipulations that you made, then yeah, you may be running afoul of unfair trade practices law, uh, mm-hmm. both at the state and the federal level. I would say because we're talking before and after photos, it's never a good practice to manipulate them in a way that materially alters what the actual outcome was, because then what are you doing? I mean, it's just fantasy, right? On the other hand, I mean, it may be appropriate because you want to have a consistent look and feel on your website that you're adjusting the lighting and backgrounds and stuff like that, that doesn't materially change the look, but makes it all sort of a little more aesthetically pleasing. That's probably fine. It's also a good idea in a case like that, if you're putting it on your website or in any sort of like semi-permanent marketing, that you would have some form of disclosure disclaimer on there that would talk about the fact that the specifics of what you've done, like the lighting in the backgrounds have been manipulated. Yeah, and I think there's also a movement afoot in the technology realm to provide tools that allow anyone to see how much an image has been manipulated, you know, just through running it through an image processor saying, this image has been heavily manipulated or lightly manipulated. So I think if a practice is doing heavy manipulation, the truth is gonna come out eventually. And it's probably just not the right thing to do right. from an ethical perspective, but also you're just going to get caught red-handed. <laughs> wow. I, I don't know why when I talk to you about legal things, we end up in these negative spaces. So I want to end on a positive note, oh, good. Um, which is change your role. You're now hired by a medical practice to sit as their general counsel. What are some positive things you would introduce in a practice to keep the bills down for litigation, keep legal being actually something where you're actually playing more golf than spending time giving them legal advice? Awesome. What are some of the things that you would introduce or suggest that oftentimes may be overlooked? Well, I think if there were one thing I would make sure that a practice was doing super consistently, besides following up on every lead that they got right away, because it's amazing what practices spend on um, patient inquiries coming yeah, in Yeah, on lead yep. generation that they then let mm-hmm. fall on the floor or try to follow up on two days later when the yep. person's already you know booked with another practice. Besides that obvious one, I would build this structure that we talked about earlier where you have an early avenue for feedback. So you are letting people know early on that you want them to let you know if there are any issues. And I would, you know, within the whatever the workflow of the practice is, you know, whether it's creating, uh, you know, setting up a specific email address or a text number or just some way that it's easy for patients to be like, hey, you know, did you know your elevator's not working? Or did you know that the guy who's working at your front desk is really brusque with everyone? Some way that you can get those blind spots really early and get them taken care of mm-hmm. before those negative reviews get posted. And then on the flip side, making sure that we've got a process where you are asking for reviews as you're closing files or at the appropriate point when you're talking with the patient so that you are building that body of reviews because reviews are super important mm-hmm. for users. Mm-hmm. But we also know that because they're unfiltered and it's relatively easy to post reviews, you know, there's always the potential for a little bit of fraud there's always the reality that people have subjective experiences. And, you know, there are people who can't possibly be pleased no matter what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. And so it's really in the overall volume of reviews that the truth comes out. It's the mosaic of the complete picture. And I think if we're honest with ourselves about how we look at reviews of products and services, that's what we're looking for. We're not basing it all on a single review. It's just the problem can be if you have a relatively low volume of customers as practices do, plastic surgery practices certainly do compared with like a massive product on Amazon, you need to make sure that you are getting enough liquidity in your reviews. Because if you only have three reviews, then there's going to be a lot more weight on each individual review. I love the tip around early warning system. I was just at a ski mountain this last weekend and I was blown away by how they had posted posters around the lodge saying, see a problem, let us know. And it had examples like clogged toilet, slippery surface, and something else. I forget what it was. And it was a simple text. And I didn't do it because I, well, the toilet I used wasn't clogged. So great. But but it was working, right? No. But I just thought, wow, this is something I haven't seen too often in small businesses. But it's so effective because it's dealing with a point of dissatisfaction and giving you an outlet for it. Normally, you leave 
oh my gosh, that resort had terrible toilets and they were super slippery and dangerous or whatever it may be. So I, I love the advice. I see it in practice now. And I think- And it, and it goes even further than that in that, I mean, you noticed it on this mountain because it, not only does it hive things off before they become a bigger problem and gets posted online, but it also allows you to fix it before that clogged toilet gets noticed by more of your customers, right? And it also, even if everything's working out perfectly, it sends this message to your patients that, hey, this practice actually cares. They really want to make sure that they are doing the absolute utmost they can to make sure that this is a great experience. So it's just such an easy way to hit across all of these parameters. And it's surprising that more practices don't do it. That's great tips. I want you to just leave us with one prediction. And that would be, you know, if you had to look forward a year, I don't know how, you know, internet years, a year's a long time, yeah. but we eagles moving slower. Uh, my understanding of like the wheels of justice move slowly, right? Yes, indeed. So what can practice expect in the horizon, near term horizon that they're going to have to figure out how to adjust to or make practice decisions that you think they should be aware of now? The one that may not be completely obvious is that if you're an elective only practice and you haven't really had to think too much about HIPAA, you probably have some pretty decent privacy practices because you know this stuff is important, but you know, you've had the luxury of not having to be super detailed or rigid about it, is that I think we're going to see either a proliferation of state by state privacy laws. We've already seen it with California. It just went into effect two months ago. Mm -hmm. It's a complete mess because they're still figuring out the regulations for what the law actually means. Washington is in the process of passing one. Uh, a number of other states have bills at various stages. So we're either gonna see a proliferation of these state-based laws or, or maybe at some point in the near future, we're going to see a federal law when it comes to privacy. Mm -hmm. We focus a lot on online privacy and you may think, well, my practice is not online. I mean, I'm you know, working on people's bodies all day. But the reality is all your marketing is online. You have a web presence. You probably have a social media presence. These are all places where your patient information could proliferate. And so you will need to think about how th that intersection looks between what you're doing with your patient information and whether it's state or federal privacy law, because that is definitely coming. Great. Something exciting to look forward to. More complexity. <laughs> more regulation, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for leaving my audience with more challenges. Uh, <laughs> no, but your insights are, are really appreciated and incredibly appreciate you spending time with us. So thank you, Josh King, General Counsel, Real Self. All right, thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And Real Self University is here to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of our podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code PODCAST to receive 50% off your first full month of Real Self Spotlights. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.